Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. This compelling quote from one of my upcoming guests, Holly Gordon, sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've come to know and work with some pretty incredible people. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you for supporting me in this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it? Maybe forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening. If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Canon Sarah Snyder is the founding director of the Rose Castle Foundation, an international center of reconciliation in the English-Scottish border, whose mission is to equip leaders with the skills, tools, and habits needed to transform conflict. A theologian who specializes in Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations, Sarah has 30 years of wide-ranging international experience in peacekeeping, dialogue, and faith-based reconciliation. She's held roles such as the Director of Partnerships with Religions for Peace International and the Archbishop of Canterbury's Special Advisor for Reconciliation. Her early career as a documentary producer for BBC Television included time spent living and working with the Tuareg nomads in the Sahara Desert, which sparked her fascination with interfaith work and the power of hospitality. My conversation with Sarah is like opening a set of Russian dolls, you encounter one story or insight just to discover another one and another. Conflict is an inevitable part of life. There are always going to be divides and there are always going to be um, clashes across those divides. So as leaders, we need to learn how to live across divides and how to live with difference. We can't erase those differences and pretend they don't exist, and nor can we let those differences overcome us. We are always transforming conflict. We're not eradicating conflict. And actually, conflict will often lead to innovation and change. We need conflict in our lives, a certain amount of healthy conflict, in order to move forward or to move on or to move out of a kind of impasse that we've reached. And by recognizing our differences, we're able to collaborate with them Sarah Snyder, I'm so excited for you to be on my show. Thank you for being here today. You're an extra special guest because you're coming in with really a fresh perspective on leadership. And I'm really excited for you to talk to us, talk to me about that perspective. You have this amazing foundation called the Rose Castle Foundation, which my daughter actually attended this program at the Rose Castle Foundation where basically we took Christians in our church, a youth group, shipped them over to England, did the same thing with a Muslim youth group here in, in New York City. They also went to England and then other Christians and Muslims in England also came. You know the story, but my daughter really didn't want to go. And she's like, I don't really know about this. What are we going to do? Was pretty reluctant. We said, I'm sorry, you don't have a choice this time. <laughs> You're going. This is an amazing opportunity. Not anything that you can miss. So she went. And before she even got home, the first thing she said to me on the phone when she was still in England was, I'm so glad you made me go. <laughs> Oh, sweetheart. It really had an impact on her. The whole program was based on 
talking about peace and reconciliation while there was not any conflict inherent to the people who went. It was really a training program and an opportunity to grow and learn about different faiths and different people in the context of, I think, community and relationship. Those are all my words. I don't know if you would use the same words, but anyway, that's how we know each other. So before we get talking about leadership and some of the things and insights that I think you're going to have, could you tell us a little bit about your role right now? What do you do? What does it mean? And why do you love it? Thank you, Winnie, so much. And just to say, your daughter is a leader in the making, and she has such a profound wisdom that she was able to share with others. And I think one of the things that was so beautiful about that particular group of young leaders who came was those of them who discovered that they already had everything they need within themselves. And actually, it was about having an opportunity to share that with others and building their confidence in that way. So she absolutely shone in that role. She was a mentor to others. She led groups. She spoke out in front of the whole group there, even people she didn't know. And you could see her growing in confidence as she was able to share from her heart and her head. At Rose Castle, we absolutely passionately believe in equipping the next generation of leaders. So tomorrow's leaders, who, as I said, are often already leaders in their own young ways right now, And we want to teach them the resilience to lead through change, through chaos and through conflict. And we've seen a lot of that in the last few years, even with the pandemic, throwing so much that's new at all of us, not just our senior leaders. And so we are teaching the skills that help you step back a little bit, think, how am I viewing this change, this conflict, this chaos? How are others viewing this change and this conflict and this chaos? And are there ways in which together, by collaborating, we can be more equipped to lead our communities or to walk in front of our communities or actually to walk behind our communities, shepherding them in ways that will bring all of us through to a better place on the other side. So that's the kind of skill set we want to teach is rising above our own often quite narrow ideology, our narrow perspective, and as if on eagle's wings to look down and see a bigger perspective, which is usually a wiser perspective. That's beautiful. I can already tell how this is going to be so relevant to people when you think about change, conflict, and chaos. We've really been living in that space quite a bit, both personally and professionally. So maybe, Sarah, you can tell us a little bit about how you came to, because you're a founder of this foundation. Yes. And literally, this foundation is in a castle. (laughs) Yes. From what I understand in your career, how did you come to this work? When my husband and I left university, we were trained as anthropologists and we went out quite early on in our careers to the Sahara Desert. And it was during the time of Live Aid when there was huge famine across much of Africa. The pictures on our television screens were of starving Africans with begging bowls, literally often, if you remember. And the adverts were saying, give your money and then they'll be full, then they'll they'll be fed. And we just thought this was such a one-sided view of an entire continent, of an entire people group. And we wanted to demonstrate, particularly for younger children, the other side of this relationship. So not just those who give, but those who receive, and then what they have to give us back again. And we led a project in the Sahara Desert, which is a very fragile environment. It's in northern Mali. It's around Timbuktu, the actual place called Timbuktu. (laughs) And it had around 40 different tribal groups all coexisting very happily. It was like a beautiful picture of a multicultural society. These people would exist by effectively bartering 
One's got fish from the river, one's got goats, one's got grain, one's got pastoral goods that they make, one's got grasses. They've all got things that together they need. And all of that comes into a shared space in the marketplace. And in the marketplace, you get all these different languages, tribes, religions, economies meeting in one space very peacefully. And that was almost a byproduct of what we were wanting to show because we wanted to show flourishing multicultural society. But it ended up being the thing that sparked my whole passion for bringing people together across divides in a shared space for the sake of the common good. What happens in a fragile environment? And actually, most of us live within a scarcity model, if you like. What happens when you bring people together to collaborate is that everybody wins. There's a flourishing of everybody. If you have one group that are taking all, then others are not able to flourish. And then that group eventually cannot flourish. And we're seeing it today with the pandemic, same effect. If half of us have got vaccines and the other half don't, we all suffer in our health. It was that early time in the Sahara Desert that taught me about the benefits of collaborating and what that means for leaders who are coming through those societies, being able to see multiple needs, not just their own need, and then being able to be a voice for others who have different needs to their own. And that's what led into this observation that actually when you have collaborating communities across quite deep divides, you have less violence, you have less war. So just by that idea of interconnected communities and the need to need each other and collaborate each other, that brings down conflict and violence. Yeah. And it does that because there is this awareness of the needs for all, not just the needs for ourselves. And even if you bring that down to a single boardroom or a classroom, for example, if you can teach young people to think of the needs of the collective, not just the needs of self, that space is going to thrive. Those people are going to thrive better than if everybody is fighting for the self only. Why do you think that is? Is it partly like then there's this lack of I have to protect myself and I can do it on my own. And so then therefore someone may want to take what I have. We in the West have grown up with a scarcity model that says there's not enough for everyone. So I better take what I need now in case there won't be enough to go around. Actually, in life, there is usually enough of the necessities in our society. I think actually in fragile societies like Sahara Desert, there often isn't enough. And that's part of the tragedy. But what you observe when there isn't enough is quite often a sharing of what little there is. And I think that was the principle that we noticed in the Sahara was there was absolutely a sharing of what little there was because nobody would survive if they didn't share the little they had. Ironically enough, right? Because what you're saying is that there was scarcity, but for us in countries where there is abundance, um, yeah, there's abundance, but we're still acting as if there's scarcity. Yep. How have you seen those concepts of abundance and scarcity and collaboration and conflict play out in leadership? Now, let's just say that your kind of sphere of leadership uh, and influence is in the religious sector. Yes which in some ways, maybe the way that conflict <laughs> plays out there is not too dissimilar, of course, but there are some differences, maybe differences that make it actually harder. Where do you see that scarcity and abundance mindset play out in leadership? The operation from a point of scarcity often leads to fear-based decision-making because there is this fear that you're going to lose if you don't 
rush to get what you need. And so my observation in leadership is that those who are leading from that space of scarcity very often end up making rushed, poor decisions because they are based on that threat of loss, that immediate threat of loss. Those who operate from a perception of abundance, even if there is not in actual fact abundance in every area of life, which there never is, they are able to make decisions in a more holistic way. They're able to rise slightly above their own immediate needs. They're able to look to the future a little bit more. They're able to recognize the bigger picture, if you like, and then they're able to make wiser decisions. So I really think there's something in this ability to teach an abundance mindset to young people where that's appropriate in order to help them to make wiser decisions that will benefit not only themselves, but the whole community. I think that idea of perception is so important because in some ways the thinking, and it's not just wishful thinking, if you choose to adopt the perception of abundance, then in some ways, just the behaviors that you have around collaboration and wanting to share and wanting to bring people in brings about abundance. And the amazing thing about abundance is when you treat other people with a perception of abundance, you recognize things in them that you may not otherwise notice. So you recognize the gifts that they're bringing into that space, whether they're co-leaders or whether they're people that you are leading. And they, in return, will respond to you with that mindset of abundance. They'll copy you. There's this kind of modeling that kicks in. When you see people leading from a place of abundance and the community responding with a mindset of abundance, it becomes a very generous space, a very generous community in which you're able to operate. Those communities are what I see as the most resilient of all the communities in conflict situations. Wow, this is so interesting. Two of the themes that you take on in the work that you do is how do you cross divides and how do you cross differences? Yes. Some of the things that I was reading about in terms of what you do and how you do it, the phrase came up of transform conflict. Yes. It didn't say reduce or avoid or <laughs> get rid of conflict, transform. So there's an element of conflict there that is good. I think the word conflict for many of us has a negative connotation. Yes. So transform conflict. What does that mean to you? Tell us about that. Conflict is an inevitable part of life. We live with conflict. We live with disagreement. We live with difference, individual differences, collective differences, cultural differences, religious differences, political differences, socioeconomic differences. We just live with difference. And therefore, there are always going to be divides and there are always going to be um, clashes across those divides. So as leaders, we need to learn how to live across divides and how to live with difference. We can't erase those differences and pretend they don't exist, and nor can we let those differences overcome us. We have to rise above them, if you like. And so in that sense, we are always transforming potential conflict at its best. We're not eradicating conflict. Conflict is an important part of life, and actually conflict will often lead to innovation and change. We need conflict in our lives, a certain amount of healthy conflict in order to move forward or to move on or to move out of a kind of impasse that we've reached. We absolutely believe in transforming damaging conflict or destructive conflict into a much more positive form of conflict. And that positive form of conflict often looks like a recognition of difference. And by recognizing our differences, we're able to collaborate with them 
not by ignoring them. So if there's a recognition of difference, how does that help? If we recognize our differences, we can recognize one another's strengths as well as our weaknesses. By recognizing somebody else's strengths that you don't have, the motivation to collaborate is much stronger. I, for example, am not good on detail. If I'm leading an organization, which I lead now, I'm a visionary, I'm a strategist, I'm a motivator of people. I am not that detail person. So I need somebody alongside me who's got all the detail, but actually who lacks a lot of that visionary ability. Together, we form a really great senior leadership team, even if we annoy each other hugely at times, because we're (laughs) very different. But we work together very well. And I think that's just a little example of how recognizing our differences has helped us to become a really resilient senior team. That's a great example. As it relates to the leaders that you've worked with, what are some really interesting or unique maybe examples that come to mind for you when you think about this whole idea of transforming conflict and recognizing your strengths and weaknesses and how you've been able to collaborate and move beyond the divide, but maybe like you said, transform it so that there's more creativity, more innovation? Yeah, so I've worked with a lot of Israeli and Palestinian community leaders, senior leaders even. And one of the most important aspects of their potential collaboration is to be able to recognize the vulnerability in the other first, because very often they are, especially if they're senior leaders, they've stopped being able to see the humanity of the leaders on the other side of that particular divide. And it's only when they're able to recognize an element of suffering on the other side that they are able to even contemplate the possibility of some kind of collaboration for both their communities. So there's something there. I often think of it as a little chink in the wall that's been thrown up between two leaders, for example, or two communities, that what they've done is they've each cast an image of the other on their side of the wall. So they've started to relate to their own image of the people on the other side of that wall. And their own image becomes more and more monstrous in time. We say things like, you hate us, you're out to get us, you're always against us, everything you do is designed to get rid of us. It's that kind of rhetoric. And of course, what they've lost is any sense of the humanity of the people on the other side. So one of the first steps, if you like, of bringing those kinds of leaders into a shared space is the ability to recognize some form of suffering in the leader on the other side. And it's in that space that you're able to begin to connect to some of the actual humanity of the other. The word that you didn't use, which I assume reflects what you're talking about, is empathy. Empathy, precisely. Yeah. But I feel like the way you described it was even better because empathy gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. And so I like the words that you were using, which is vulnerability and suffering. Yes. And especially suffering feels a little bit almost extreme, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> no. But I like that fresh language. One of the reasons I didn't use empathy is that for many people, particularly who have spent a long time in opposition to the others that they need to collaborate with, they've lost all empathy for the other side. So they don't have that empathy. If you ask them to step into the other's shoes for a little while, they have an inability to do that. That's right. So it's almost saying that before you can have empathy for somebody else, you need to recapture an element of their vulnerability. 
because it's in their vulnerability that you're able to see a glimpse of their humanity. When you say that, I almost think about using that vulnerability against them. Yes. Because in some ways, that's the opposite of what we're talking about, obviously. But I can see where somebody might be quite calculating in understanding what someone's vulnerability is. And using it. Yeah. How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? Like, how do you frame it so that it's used for good? (laughs) Yeah. So it needs to be a mutual understanding that you're working towards. And I think that is often the skill of the facilitator of that encounter between people on each side of quite a serious divide. And the facilitator needs to make sure that the space in which people meet is a safe space. And when I say safe, I don't mean a space where nothing can be said that's real. Yeah. I mean a space where you actually can say things that won't be used against you. And the facilitator has the responsibility for holding that space and holding the trust of both sides that whatever is said will not be abused in that context. So I often say that the third person present is just as important as any two individuals who are present. And when you've got senior leaders, they always need a third facilitator, a trained facilitator, a trained mediator sometimes, who can hold that kind of space because people aren't used to holding space around a senior leader. Yeah, that is interesting. Does that third person mediator or facilitator, do they hold the two people accountable to the process, right? And to the purpose that they're there for. So they continually ground them in what they're doing and how this is being done. Yes. And reminding them that they are both in that space for a reason. And that reason is to build a bridge into the other's space, the other's community, the other's way of thinking. Yeah. And so it's a very different kind of space to a negotiating space, for example, where you might want to abuse somebody else's vulnerability to improve your negotiating position. That's not the space we're in when we're talking about this kind of collaboration across a divide. It's a mediating space. It's a bridge building space, if you like. And each side has to be committed to that process in order for it to work. So what's been the toughest (laughs) relationship that you've had to facilitate and mediate? What's been the most difficult situation that you've had to encounter and how did you pull through it? How did you navigate it? I won't share specifics because they're all relationships that it would be difficult to name, if you like. But the most regular situation I find in a leadership encounter is between a Western leader and a non-Western leader. And that's because very often the Western leader is framed in a secular mindset in their professional articulation of what they want in life, particularly in a leadership role, and particularly when they're very, very senior leaders. So their language, if you like, is a secular language. The non-Western leader will often be entirely framed by a worldview that is religious. It might be Islamic, it might be Christian, it might be Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, it might be any one of a number of religions. But their decision making, their ideology, the way in which they view the world is entirely through a faith based lens, if you like. And what can happen in the conversation is one group are talking in a very transactional language. If you do this, we'll do this. If you give us this, we'll give you this. And then on the other side of the table, you've got a leader whose world is not transactional. They're viewing, for example, avoidance of shame or discovery of those kinds of principles are far more important to them than the material transaction that's going to take place. And if the leaders are missing 
that language on each side, nothing moves. They remain in a very stuck negotiating position. So how do you navigate those languages and worldviews to bring them closer? I often talk about helping each side look at what's under the tip of the iceberg, and that's very common in leadership training. And under the iceberg, there are motivations, much deeper motivations. And there are also fears that at all attempts, we must avoid this. So we must avoid, for example, shame. And on another side of the table, it might be we must avoid loss of face or we must avoid loss, financial loss. That is really important to us. So being able to help each side understand what are the deep motivations that the other side need in order to come out of this well. And that takes a good facilitator. It's actually an intercultural language, an interparadigm language. It's a hermeneutic of crossing a big divide that is ideological. And how many times do you feel like those leaders understand their own language and understand their own space and where they're coming from? Is that part of the work you're doing is helping educate them what they believe, (laughs) what they think? Because it's so like embedded. Exactly that. That's so true. That the pre-work for any kind of encounter is helping each side understand their own assumptions. What are the assumptions we're bringing to the table? How have we been formed and shaped? What are the things we're most afraid of? And what would be a win-win outcome for us? What would it look like for us? And then doing the same work with the other side. So you're asking all those same questions. And then you, the facilitator, really need to help each side find a common language so they can actually meet across that chasm of difference. And so some of that work you do on their own before they meet. Yes. And part of that is where you also, as a facilitator, you're building trust in the leaders on each side who need to know that you've got their back. That is a very unique third person role is for you to be able to have the back of each side genuinely. If you don't really, they soon work it out. I always think being a mediator or being a facilitator is a particular role that suits some people and doesn't suit others. And part of that is the ability to really want the best for each side in a conflict or a change situation. What else do you think that mediator or facilitator person, what other qualities does that person have to have to be good at that in that role? They have to be really good at communication and particularly at translation of one style of communication to another style of communication. So being a translator is critical. Also being a cultural, linguistic, ideological translator. So you're able to see some kind of similarity between two different approaches, if you like, and you're able to then connect those two so that each side can understand them. I think being an extremely good listener is so important and listening in that kind of open listening way that is genuinely trying to understand where each side is coming from. And I think then gravitas, actually, a mediator needs to have enough gravitas to hold a space that is a difficult space. And if they're flimsy, they can't do it. Yeah, flimsy. And also they probably have to have on some level the respect of the other two parties or people or leaders to be able to hold that gravitas. Yes. And they have to have earned that respect. You can't just tell them, I'm really good at this, so you've got to come with me. (laughs) You have to earn it every time. you got to show them, right? Yeah. No, that's a great point. Gosh, there's just so many parallels to leadership. It's hard to keep up. (laughs) And I don't know if this happens very often where leaders become that facilitator, become that mediator. You think of, well, that's HR's job or that's like a consultant's job. But I can see where that mediator, where a CEO or a senior executive, if they were able to take on some of those qualities, 
could really facilitate not only good working relationships at a minimum, but facilitate even differences in terms of point of view around different people's roles. I absolutely agree that to be an effective CEO in an organization, whatever the size of that organization, you need to have the skills of a good mediator. You don't need to be only a mediator because you've got to have all sorts of skills as a CEO. You've got to lead from the front sometimes. You've got to lead from the back sometimes. You've actually got to lead from the side at times. But to be an effective CEO, I think you have to be able to allow your co-leaders and others within your organization to feel heard. And part of allowing people to feel heard, even if you're not going to act on everything that you hear, is about creating the motivation and the kind of unity within your organization that means you can all collaborate together for the sake of that organization. It's the same principle, whether it's an institution or a community or a faith-based organization. That's a really interesting connection there between having other leaders in your organization feel heard and that connection to motivation. Yes. Can you say more about that? I'd love to hear more about what you think about that connection. Yeah, I have observed over many decades of watching leaders in heightened conflict situations that one of the skills of the best leaders is that they are able to listen to diverse points of view, to listen to different points of view, if you want to go back to that difference language, and take it on board in a way that is genuine, and then come out with a decision that's going to be the right decision for the organization. In those contexts, people around that boardroom table or around that decision-making table at least feel that their perspective has been heard, even if they know that their decision is not the one that's taken forward. That's different to the kind of leader who literally tramples over other people's perspectives, doesn't listen to the differences with their own point of view, and in doing so, I think, lose the wisdom of making a right decision. Yeah. And there is something about feeling included. Yes. And feeling like I was able to participate. And even if, like you said, even if they came with their own idea to the table and they've allowed everyone else to speak, probably something about what it is they originally came with has shifted at least a little bit. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And then you think, what are we afraid of by listening to different points of view to our own as a leader? If we're sure about our leadership, we've got nothing to worry about in listening to other diverse points of view before making our final decision. We may well make the same decision we were going to make before, but we make that decision knowing that we've heard some of the contrary points of view. And I just think wise decision making is always open to hearing alternative perspectives before a decision is made. Yeah, that's right. So we're talking about two things, right? So one is the output of any decision and knowing that you've gotten other people's perspectives. Hopefully, if you have diversity in the room, you're making a better informed, perhaps more creative decision because of that, right? Yes. Back to motivation, you also are tapping into and you've not only have you made it clear that you've heard from everybody, but you've also made it clear that probably from the process of hearing and the process of sharing and collaborating, most likely, again, that decision has probably shifted from where it was before you walked in the room. Yes. So even though, like you were saying, my decision wasn't chosen, my decision probably influenced, if nothing else, hopefully at least I've been heard, but also there's a good chance that I was able to influence. Yes. And in doing that, you're also, as a co-leader, saying, I know that I'm valued. 
my voice is valued and my presence at this decision-making table is valued. And everybody needs to feel valued by their presence. And I think in many organizations, particularly hierarchical organizations, you lose that valuing of difference because everybody feels they need to become a clone in order to be heard. They need to say things that are going to please the next layer up. And of course, that leads to all sorts of disastrous decision-making when it's left to fester. And if you don't have people who are willing to come up with the alternative viewpoint or say things that no one else has said or whatever, those senior leaders are not able to make maybe great decisions because they're not hearing different points of view and perspectives. Yes. And I think that's a danger with the way our societies in the West particularly have become so polarized. And we see it, all of us, we see it in our politics, for example, that people are making decisions within a bubble of their own support groups. And they're not making decisions that are actually going to influence an entire country. That's right. They're not making decisions on the basis of listening to different perspectives before that decision is made. And why is that? That's usually because there's either a fear of listening to the other side. You don't want to listen to it in case it disrupts your decision that you're making. Or there's a complete wall that you've thrown up that says they don't even have anything worth saying. Nothing they have to offer this decision-making process, so we won't include them. But actually, what that does is it creates narrower and narrower corridors of decision-making. You're going to lose the wisdom in that decision if you continue to go down that route. Yeah, right. And I wonder if the fear also extends to popping their bubble. We don't want to have our belief systems and the way that we view the world to be disruptive. There could be a cascade of disruptions if that happens. So there's that fear. Yes. And so part of that speaks to this need. When you're equipping tomorrow's leaders, you want to continue to affirm the rock on which they stand. And that rock can be ideological. It can be faith-based. You don't want to send them off into a kind of open sea where they're fighting for their lives, as it were. You want to encourage them to stand on their rock. But while they're standing on that rock, to be able to consider the things around them and take that on board as they're making decisions. So it is a balance, particularly with emerging leaders, but it's a balance that I think is needed more and more in the kind of social media world we live in now, which is brilliant in many, many ways. But of course, it's also pushing us into narrower and narrower information feeds where we begin to normalize ideas that are just like our ideas. And I think that for the next generation of leaders is something we want to expose and we want them to know when they're being squashed in their mindset, if you like, or surrounded by people just like themselves. That's a dangerous position. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said about the rock. (laughs) I think that's a really important point. So the idea isn't just to throw out everything that you believe or you experienced in your life or whatever and take it as invalid. The idea is not only to stand on what you believe and your experience and your perspective and your point of view, but to then lift your head up and look around to see what other rocks are around you, which hopefully we haven't maybe said this as pointedly, but it might also strengthen the rock that you're standing on. Yes. But I think it goes back to that fear that that rock might totally crumble. Now, while some of your rock might be transformed a bit, or you might be like, oh, I don't know if I like that part of it, right? Like, I'm willing to let that go. But it could also make parts of it much stronger as well. Yeah. So part of that journey of leadership is understanding the rock that we stand on. And if you like, the forces that have shaped us as we've grown into the leader that we're becoming. And it's about being 
proud of those forces, but also being aware of those forces. And then ultimately, it's about making a choice. I choose to remain on this rock. This is the rock on which I stand. And this is the rock that shapes me into the leader that I am today, the unique leader, actually, that I am today. But I will only know how unique I am by looking out at all those other rocks around me and realizing that they're different. And that's okay. You bring up a really good point because the leaders that I've worked with over the years too, especially you mentioned this is emerging leaders. We don't really know actually what leadership means or what it means to us. We're early on in our lives and in our careers, we're kind of looking to the experience we've had of other leaders and the other leaders that have been in our lives or have shaped us, which is good. It's like a good start. But at some point, then you need to really shape and validate and have more clarity around the leader that you want to be. And that takes some work. It's easy just to step on someone else's rock, you know, rather than really think about, well, how do I want to show up as a leader? What are the behaviors and ways of thinking or the way that I make decisions or treat people or what are my business goals and how are those shaped by how I see the world and how I see my business and how I think it's going to impact my customers or my clients, really being thoughtful about that and taking the time that it takes to work through that. I think that's also what you're talking about too. It is. And we have come up with 12 habits that we think mark a resilient or a wise leader in the face of change and chaos and conflict. And those habits come out of decades of watching leaders, outstanding leaders, but often very ordinary people lead through conflict, through change, from a place of wisdom. It's a place that they're able to see the bigger picture, not just the very small perspectives that their community have or that they themselves have. And those habits are, for example, an ability to show curiosity and ask the why question. Why do they behave in that way? Why do they think that? Why are they able to do it this way and we're not able to do it that way? So that the whys of life are super important. Another one is actually the ability to forgive when forgiveness is appropriate. And very often we're carrying increasing amounts of resentment as we go through our leadership journey. And the more resentment we carry, the more that begins to carve us out as a resentful leader, a resentful person. And the ability to let go of some of the things that we're unable to keep carrying is very, very important. And it's actually the only way to break us out of that kind of cycle of retaliation with others. And then just another example is the habit of hospitality. How do we as a leader open hospitable spaces for ourselves as leaders, but also for the people that we're leading? And that hospitable space is not just always about hosting about making everybody fit into our comfortable space and do things the way we like doing things. It's also about being willing to take the risk of going into somebody else's less comfortable space in order to learn more, in order to lead better. And that might include some of your own staff, some of your own customers, the people you find the most difficult. It's being willing to say, I'm actually going to go and listen to them before I continue in my leadership journey. So those are just three of the 12, but we've got 12 because it's a year's formation and it's really about applying those different habits into our own workplace context and seeing what that looks like for us in our context. For you as a leader, both leading Rosecastle, but leading other leaders as they figure out change, conflict and chaos, what does it look like for you being a woman in these religious leadership spaces 
How have you navigated that? Do you think that's given you an advantage being a woman or have you been disadvantaged? Yeah, and two completely different answers. Okay. <laughs> On the one hand, and one of them is going to be very countercultural, so I'll say that one first and be provocative. I have often sat in all male spaces. I'm working very often with senior religious leaders, and they are usually men in most parts of the world. I will find myself as the facilitator or the mediator or the member of the group as the only woman in that space. And I learned very early on that my voice was not always listened to in the same way other male voices were listened to. And so what I worked out was that I would often see what was needed because I'm able to listen to different perspectives coming through and I would throw out a seed, but I would throw it out as a question instead of a statement. And then one of the men would pick up that seed and would say it as a statement. And then everybody would go, oh, yes, yes, yes. And we think this is a very good idea. And although that sounds as if that's incredibly pessimistic of me, I realized that it was actually a very strategic way to move a conversation on. And as I got older, I think my voice became more and more relevant to the table. That was particularly the case when I was a younger woman at the senior leaders' tables. I have learned to throw out seeds as questions, wait for them to be picked up as statements, and then to be able to affirm that statement. And I know all along that I put that idea into the table. I don't need to be thanked publicly for it. I've got a maturity that says I made a difference. I was here. And actually, my voice was heard. It just was heard in a way that might not have been acknowledged by others openly. Most of them know where the seed came from, even if they don't say it outwardly. So that's one kind of space, the boardroom space, if you like. The other space where it has been absolutely an advantage to be a woman has been that I'm less of a threat in a male competitive conflict as a woman than I am if I was another man coming into that space. I wouldn't have predicted that, but I have found that to be the case again and again and again. I've got a, an experience now to bring to that competitive conversation, if you like. I've got nothing to prove because the whole point of being there as a facilitator is to help them make a good decision. And so I can be very present and even very bold in leading their conversation and helping them to move forward step by step without them in any way feeling that I'm threatening their stature, if you like, or threatening their position in that conversation. So it's been hugely helpful as a mediator to be a woman in those spaces. Yeah, those are great examples. I think the seed concept is a really great one, even though maybe it's countercultural, I don't know, but just accepting the reality of the situation. I think it goes back to you being really clear about what your role is. My role isn't to put a spotlight on myself. The role is to move the conversation forward or to help these two parties come to some sort of closer space or, or an agreement or, or something. And so however it is that you get there, <laughs> you're happy to get there. Yeah. And what I notice in a lot of those conversation spaces, and this is even more the case, the more senior the leader, a lot of the conversation is about saving face. It's about making sure I come through this looking good. And that is a barrier to good decision making and to moving forward. 
So as a woman in that space, or even more so as a facilitator in that space, I don't have any of those barriers. I don't need to worry about saving space. I'm helping them move forward. So if I can identify ways of ensuring they save face whilst also changing their mind on certain things, then that is the skill that I can bring to that table. And the best way to do it is usually by planting these seeds in the form of questions that they can then take up if they want to. It's like a gift that you offer them and they can take it up and they can own it and make it their decision, not one that's been forced on them. And I was going to bring that up. That's exactly right. So there's also a sense of you being able to create some ownership for them. Yes. Because in some ways, the facilitator and the mediator, their role isn't to, like you said, force them or say, this is what you must do. It's to cultivate their own connections and their own growth. And if it's the seeds and them feeling like they have some ownership in those ideas, even better. (laughs) And that's interesting as a leader myself, because the sign of success in that kind of conflict scenario or competitive conversation scenario is that nobody realizes that I helped. They think they did it themselves. That is a great sign of success that they feel they made it work. That's right. And I can see where that could go back to even a CEO working with his team or her team. And then that really connects to motivation. Like if the team feels like, wow, us as a team, it becomes less of a cult of personality. The business and the function and the health of an organization isn't dependent on a person. It's codependent and interdependent on each other, which makes for not only better results and more dynamic, but creates this sense, again, I guess I'm going back to motivation and feeling like we are all co-creating together and it's not being directed by one person. Yeah. And that is a very artistic, creative, mature leader that is able to lead in that way, that kind of co-creative, that shared ownership of decision-making is the harder path quite often because it can take a little longer. But in the long term, it's actually upskilling the whole organization. And it's certainly motivating the whole organization to want to continue to journey with you. The only caveat to that is that there are times, and we all know these times in a crisis, where there has to be a very quick decision made and you have to take it and run with it. So it's not saying that collaborative decision making is always the right way. But within an organization, the culture that you create through collaborative decision making is very, very helpful for growing that organization. I'm really glad you pointed that out because that is really critical. And I do talk a lot about this when I work with leaders. It's situational leadership. So where do you be directive? I have to do it. I have to make decision whether there's a time element or a crisis Then there's the collaborative and then there's the delegating, like you guys do it, knowing the difference, being really thoughtful and aware of when those kinds of ways of working and decisions, when they need to be made, when it's appropriate, being really smart about that too. And knowing yourself, I suppose too, that you know that you're choosing those different styles of decision-making and not based on your own needs, but based on what's best for the organization and that moment. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So Sarah, is there anything from your childhood and when you were growing up that informs who you are today or how you got here or any insights that you gained earlier on that you still turn to? Yes. So one of the great inspirations was my dad and the role that he had. He was actually a a lawyer. We grew up in a racially tense period of time in Bermuda 
And dad was representing people within the community who didn't always have a voice. Bermuda was quite a divided community at the time. And he had this great sense of representing people who he felt didn't have the same voice that others had in that society. I would often sit in court or I'd hear him come home and describe the different ways in which he was helping to give a voice to the people who were in court. So helping them have their own voice, not speaking on their behalf, which is often what a lawyer can also do. And I think that got me thinking a lot about how do we help those who have less voice have their own voice rather than speaking on their behalf. And part of that was also recognizing that the ways in which other people speak might be different to the ways in which we speak and that the desired outcomes that other people might want might be different to what we think they would want. My dad's leadership within a courtroom environment, strangely, really helped me learn a lot of those lessons of what would it be like to bring different groups of people around the same table in order to listen to one another before making a decision of how they were going to proceed. The only other shaping that was huge for me was growing up in a Christian environment that placed a huge emphasis on servant leadership, so a servant model of leadership. And that was leading from a place of strength, but also a place that served the wider good. And I think that model of leadership, you can probably tell, has very much shaped my own approach to leadership. It's not about forcing others to follow behind me. It's more about shepherding others to come in a direction together that we all think is probably the right one. But even beyond the shepherding, it's about making front decisions that are based on an awareness of everybody rather than just myself. And I think we don't see enough of that in today's world, partly because we're all operating at such speed that we haven't got time to step back and think about the bigger picture. Yeah, which is really a problem. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, what else comes to mind that would be good to talk about in the context of leaders and equipping leaders and leaders thinking about being better at what they do? Yeah. One thing I would love to touch on is the difference between tomorrow's leaders and today's leaders. So today's leaders, if I'm a leader, I've been shaped in a particular kind of world. It's a world that did value the secular over the spiritual, for example, in the public square. I think the next generation of leaders are much, much more articulate about the spiritual needs, the soul needs, if you like, as well as the factual needs. So it's bringing together a spiritual and a scientific or bringing together a mind and a heart or however you like to look at those different kinds of space. I see in the next generation a more holistic way of observing the world. They care about ethics and morality and in the, the decisions that they're making impacting other parts of their life. And so I wonder in our leadership models, if we, the older generation, who are often now in senior leadership roles, have so much to learn from the next generation coming through. We're used to making decisions based on a series of facts that are presented to us. And then out of those facts, if we're a good leader, we'll come to a conclusion. I think they are making decisions based on a lot more than just facts. They're making decisions based on a kind of sense of well-being, for example, or a greater balance to a decision. And that balance might even be about home work life for themselves and for their employees, for example. 
that's something I just want to celebrate in tomorrow's leaders. I love the fact they're doing that. And I think it will be very good for the world to have more leaders who are able to do that. Do you think the pandemic sort of helped get us closer to that? Yeah, I think the pandemic, apart from the absolute crises and loss that it has forced upon all of us, so much more than others, I think the pandemic has exposed the fragility of what we thought was stable. And it's opened up a whole load of questions about the way we do things that I think are very healthy questions. Why do we spend two and a half hours commuting every day to get to an office? Why do we imagine that our decision-making process is better than other people in other parts of the world, for example? Why do we even think that we have a right to make decisions when actually everything can change tomorrow, which it does right now? (laughs) So I think something about that shaking up of the foundations of our whole assumptions is very healthy for us, even though it's quite scary for people too. I wonder if part of that shaking up is going to pave the way for tomorrow's leaders because they're going to be coming into leadership roles knowing that nothing is definite, nothing is constant in their decision-making world. Things can change, and they need to be equipped to deal with that change. And it's not going to be a, a rare event. It's going to be, I suspect, a much more common event than we grew up with, relatively peaceful and pandemic-free world in the last few decades. Yeah, I think that's a really exposed the fragility. But the fragility was always there. Yeah. We were pretending, <laughs> maybe for a long time, that we had more control than we did, that things were more stable than they really were. Yeah, I wrote a strategic plan for the next five years in 2019. Well, how much of that has stood the test of time? Almost <laughs> none of it. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. I think that's very good for our leadership. It keeps us on our toes. It allows us to adapt. In our case, it's allowed us to innovate hugely with online spaces. How do you build trust online? That's been really, really important for us. We were doing that anyway, but it's sped up the whole process by which we do that. Our young people, our alumni, are so well equipped to deal with this online world in terms of leadership and opening up space and the right kinds of space. They're better than we are. That's right. It kind of goes back to that whole idea of standing on your rock. It's like, you should do the strategic five-year plan. Still do that, right? But don't get stuck there. Don't think that now that you've written it down, that it's going to happen. Being flexible, being willing to see the situation and environment as it unfolds for what it really is, but doesn't mean that you can't plant that rock (laughs) or build it. Yes, you're right. So again, that's about balance. It's about knowing the rock you stand on, but recognizing that sometimes that rock's going to have a good shaking. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly. It might crack a couple times. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this has been so much fun. I just feel like there's so much to dive in here in terms of really unpacking it as it relates to leadership, because there's so many great things here. And like you're saying, I think that leadership really is evolving right now in the world. And it's such an important time to be talking about leadership. I think we're seeing lots of different kinds of leadership in the world today than maybe we even did before. And we get to really make some decisions about, again, what kind of leader do we want to be? And even if you're not leading a company, you could be a leader in your community or in your family, or even in your friend group or something like that. Leadership, I see it as pretty wide. Yeah. And I think the one thing I would just love to leave with is that we are better leaders when we listen to different points of view to our own. 
not because we then change our mind and, and follow other people's ideas, but because we are better informed in the decisions we make when we're willing to listen to very different perspectives around us. And I think that's what we have lost. And I wonder, did we ever have that? We probably did when we had more surprise encounters with people who were different to ourselves. Going back to the Sahara Desert, they were always meeting completely different tribal, economic, linguistic, religious people in their marketplaces. And that helped them understand a much broader, wider perspective of life that helped their decision makings within their own tribal group. Yeah. We likewise, here in the West, we need to bump into people who are different to ourselves regularly because that helps us make wise decisions as leaders. And we've lost some of that because of our increased polarization and our increased retreat into these social bubbles full of people and ideas just like us. Yeah. And honestly, that's actually one of the reasons I love and have chosen to live in New York City, even though New York City certainly has its own bubbles for sure. But you're more likely to run into people that are different than you just walking down the street, riding the bus, riding the subway than you would in many, many other parts of the world, yeah. or certainly in this country. That is absolutely the reason that I love living here. And I love New York for that reason. Literally love it. <laughs> yes. But you said something that I want to come back to, which is leaders could just listen more to other people's point of view. That's actually not hard. No. It's not a heavy lift. It doesn't take a skill. It takes a skill set in terms of listening, but it's not inaccessible. Like it's pretty easy to do. It does take some time, which we're all short on or feel like we're short on. But I, I just think that is an important one to leave because if anyone listened to this episode, you would get one thing, right? Which is to say, listening more and seeking out to listen to more people who have a differing point of view, that would be amazing. It would. And the only thing that stops us doing that is fear, usually. Fear that we might hear something we don't like. But we don't need to be afraid of that. Because if we hear something we don't like, and if we hear something we think is wrong, we don't have to follow it. But at least we've heard it, we've weighed it up, we've assessed it, and we've thought, no, I'm not going to go that one. I'm going to go with this one. Well, Sarah, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time to talk with me about all these concepts. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you for asking the questions, Winnie. I don't reflect on these things nearly enough, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much. <laughs>